Gay Mitchell Meets, a series of unique interviews with prominent people in public life. These interviews go beyond the normal soundbite and provide real analysis of issues in public affairs. In this episode, Gay Mitchell talks to Stephen Collins, former political editor of the Irish Times. Stephen has been a political journalist for over 20 years and was formerly the political editor of the Sunday Tribune and the Sunday Press, having started work as a journalist with the Irish Press Group. Stephen, very welcome. You, you've been one of the most respected and senior political commentators for, for many years. What made you choose journalism as a career? And, and looking back, who were the great standard bearers of journalism in your time? Well, I kind of fell into journalism slightly by accident. Mind you, my father was a journalist. My father was on the sub-editing layout design side. He worked in the Sunday Press. But uh, I went to UCD. I did history and politics. And then I did an MA in politics. Uh, and my supervisor was Morris Manning, who was very helpful and I'm still still friendly with him. Uh, but Morris thought my thesis was well written and he thought, asked me had I considered journalism. My father had advised me strongly against, <laughs> but I taught for a year. I did the HDIP and I taught for a year uh, in, in Sally Noggin Tech, as it was known then. Uh, and I realised that teaching wasn't really for me, so I... Uh, applied to a number of papers including the Irish Press and when I was called for an interview uh, Tim Pat Coogan I did have to say I mentioned in the in the course of the interview that my father had worked in the press so uh, I'm sure that didn't stand <laughs> against me uh, so Tim Pat gave me my first job but that was as a sub-editor because in those days they wouldn't take on Reporters. Reporters were people who had worked in the provincial papers generally, who had experience covering the courts, coming up through the, the, the whole uh, newspaper system. Uh, they took on university graduates as sub-editors. When you talk about the Irish press then, names like Michael Mills come to mind. Were they, were they the, the stalwarts? The- well, 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 they were, absolutely. Yeah. When you asked me there, who, who are the giants of journalism, who did I respect? I'd have to say Michael Mills would be uh, top of the class there. I remember him even as a teenager watching him on television. Uh, he was on kind of chat shows uh, about politics. Uh, and when I joined the Irish press, uh, I moved from sub-editing to reporting after about 18 months. I got my foot in the door through sub-editing. Uh, and because I'd done a degree in politics, there was a the news editor, chief news editor called Michael O'Kane, Mick O'Kane, uh, who thankfully is still with us. And he knew I was interested in politics, so he asked me to do political stories, and I gradually moved in that direction. But Michael Mills was the person I looked up to, and he was a great mentor and a great advisor. When he saw I was doing politics, he did sit down and talk to me. And he also talked to me about uh, not being pushed. Uh, while Tim Pat Coogan, I have great affection for Tim. Tim, he gave me the job. Michael Mills was saying, don't let the editor... Uh, try and push you in any direction. Your job is to report the facts. Uh, and I remember the chief sub-editor when I joined was John Banville, the, the novelist. I remember John was very, very strict on no uh, news reports had to be absolutely impartial, objective, uh, no opinions in, in, in news. Opinions were for the other part of the paper. I remember once Frank MacDonald challenging John Banville about this and Banville said, look, we work for a paper that is editorially supports Fianna Fáil. Um, he's so he said, if, 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 if we are going to have opinions, the only one kind of opinion will actually permeate, but nobody will object to us reporting the news straight down the middle. And that's what we did. And it was a great training in the Irish press. And uh, while the paper was certainly, uh, the editorial line was pro Fianna Fáil, uh, the paper was owned by the de Valera family. Um, uh, it, it was uh, great training. And nobody ever nobody ever told me how to write a story in, te- in, in terms of slanting it. I was told how to write a story in terms of getting the information in and how to write it. And uh, it was a great training ground. They're, they're all extraordinary. Uh, household names. T- today, who are the giants and, and, and does, does good political journalism matter? 
Well, I think good political journalism does matter. It's uh, who are the giants is a more difficult question because when you're older, I'm, I'm older now than most of my, my, my contemporaries, I think the Irish Times political team are a very good political team. Uh, Pat Lee succeeded me as political editor, but there's Harry McGee, Fia Kelly, Sarah Barton, Mary Minahan. They're all my colleagues and I trust them uh, very much. I trust their objectivity and their judgment. Uh, I, but looking at a wider level, there, I won't, there are lots of people writing about politics I wouldn't trust. Uh, I wouldn't really take their views seriously. Um, so uh, I think good political journalism, I think it does matter. I think particularly in the era we're in now with the, after the Trump and the, the post-truth or post-fact or whatever era you want to call it, um, I think good journalism does matter and uh, the public need to have a trust in the, the quality of the journalism. And I think the mainstream media have been far too deferential to what they call social media. They've promoted social media as their rivals almost, and social media is not really media. It's personalised, it's opinion, it's it's misinformation, information, all jumbled up, and there's no uh, basis for trusting what we call social media. I like to rely on old-fashioned media. I think the Irish Times is still a great paper. When I look at the, the British media, I've, I've started in the last few years buying the Financial Times. I'm not hugely into business, but the Financial Times, I think, is a very authoritative and very sound uh, paper in terms of writing about the UK, which is very important to us, and the world in general. And they have some, they have some great journalists there. A, a lot of what you say there um, it reflects the fact that um, we're living in the moment more as people, mm. more, we're more consumers journalism or a lot of journalism is to do with just reflecting the facts. But we're commemorating the 60th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome um, and all that went with that. I mean, it's not that's not in the moment, but it's still so relevant to the moment. In your career, what changes have you seen in Ireland because of our membership for the European Union? Were they in the main or were they all positive? What, what's your general view of the European well, Union? Well, I would be very pro-Europe and pro-European Union and more so as time goes on. Uh, people, I hear people, a lot of people saying, oh, it needs to be reformed. Of course it always does. But it's been a hugely beneficial. Economically, there is absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, we're roughly around the same age. And I remember growing up, people are immeasurably better off now than they were. So economically, there is, you know, our kids, our grandchildren have a lifestyle uh, you know, our parents could only have dreamed of. Um, so I think our living standards have improved enormously as a result of Europe. I also think uh, our confidence as a nation has improved uh, because we are taken seriously uh, when we were we, we, are, we are a small country but, I, but we still have a seat among the 27 around the table and depending on the quality of the, of, of the, of the Taoiseach of the day and the ministers of the day and the civil servants of the day who are very important we can have an, an input far we can punch far above our weight and I think we largely have done that but I think, but I think psychologically, the last one point I'd mention is we had an obsession, I think, with with the Brits, with the UK, the relationship with Britain, and it was a love hate relationship, uh, and people were obsessed by it, and yet uh, it was an infer- it was a relation of inf- an inferior to uh, superior, and I think we've been freed from that, and I think we have a much healthier relationship with the UK. Uh, now, because we're part of the European Union and we're not utterly dependent on on the British as as we were before, they're leaving the EU is going to have a huge impact on us. But we're still far better off, in my opinion, to stay with the EU because that's has transformed our lives. I was thinking as you as you as you were speaking, or when I became a TD first, and it's not sort of ancient history, but in in the eighties, I was I was very young when I was elected first. I had a thousand people in one part of Crumlin alone who signed a petition who'd been waiting for phones for five years. And if I tell this to my children, they look at me as if I some some sort of you know this ancient history. Yeah. But I, I take the view that. Um, we didn't become truly uh, um, sovereign until the day we joined the European Union because up until then, 
Britain, we so much depended on Britain. They set the value of our currency. They set the interest rate. Um, what, what do you think of that, Todd? Do you think oh, sovereignty do, has been enhanced? I think sovereignty has been enhanced hugely. I think there's a lot of, uh, particularly because of the whole Brexit referendum, uh, the emphasis on, on, on sovereignty. You could have absolute sovereignty, as we did, for instance, during the, the great de Valera years, but we had no influence whatsoever. We hadn't really real freedom. I think pooling sovereignty actually is the is the way is the way to go. You can't. We no man is an island, uh, and by joining the EU, uh, we, our outlook has widened. But we have an an impact. Our, our views do matter. Uh, so uh, in in the whole. Again, looking at the whole future relationship of the EU, for instance, the Taoiseach is going over next week to meet the Danish Prime Minister and the Dutch Prime Minister uh, because we are the most affected, three countries most affected by British Britain leaving. But we have an influence there informing all of European policy. Uh, and uh, I, I, so I think our sovereignty has actually been enhanced by membership of the EU rather than, than being diminished. And I think Irish people are generally very positive about that, and have a rec- there is a recognition, I think, of that uh, in, in a way that people just people. We I think we are still in, in the in the Eurobarometer survey as one of the m- most pro EU countries. We feel that it has done us good, and I think that there's no no doubt about that. Well, I want to turn to the question of of of, of Britain and the EU and Brexit and all of that. But before I do, um, the treatment of the three High Court judges in Britain, uh, enemies of the state, mm. because they interpreted the law. Um, do you think have British politicians become fearful of journalists and fear, fearful of doing the right thing by the people because they will get this similar treatment? What, what? Well, I, well, I think for me, I have contempt for most of British, most British media. It's, it's appalling. I'm not talking about, about the, the, obviously, of the BBC, the Financial Times, but even some of the papers I would regard it as pretty good, like the Telegraph. Okay, conservative, right wing, but you could believe the facts a bit. Like I was talking about the old Irish press, you can't anymore. It's absolutely dripping with venom, uh, with uh, opinion, uh, and I think the British media has a, played a huge role in manipulating British public opinion over 20, 30 years into this anti-EU mode. Uh, it's created the, 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 the almost a, a hatred of of Europe and narrowness of vision. Uh, and I think it's it's been a very baleful, influ- baleful influence on British public opinion. So I think whatever um, our shortcomings, say, in the Irish media, and we, we, nobody's perfect, when you look at the way the British media behave, I think they have to be uh, probably the worst in the world. I don't know enough about other countries to know, but I don't imagine Imagine uh, other countries have this same uh, incessant kind of propagandizing uh, way of approaching things and the scurrilous and just sheer nastiness of most of what's in the British tabloids. Somebody did some calculation that uh, during the referendum campaign that 80 percent of the newspaper coverage, 80 percent of the of the population who were buying papers were buying papers that were violently anti-Europe. So I mean that has to ha- that has to have an impact, particularly when the vote was so close to the end. So I think the I would, and the British media bulk of it, a lot of it owned by Australians and by people outside the UK. Um, but it, politicians are undoubtedly afraid. I've talked to MPs who are who, who are who are who are certainly terrified of the British media. Yeah, I, I can I can see that from the outside. So let's let's just st- stick with Brexit then for for a minute. In the week we're in, the sudden surprise general election <clears throat> called yesterday, the fixed term act thrown to one side. What do you think the election? What effect will the election have on on Brexit? Will it mean a softer Brexit, a harder Brexit? Will it mean? Do you think that the European Union will find it easier to do business with a Prime Minister that has a stronger uh, mandate? And will she get a stronger mandate? Well, taking those uh, things in a row, 
Let's assume for a minute that she will get a stronger mandate. The Labour Party is in such disarray in the UK. The Liberal Democrats haven't really recovered. Uh, mind you, the Scottish Nationalists are in a very strong position. But assuming she has a strong majority, uh, looking at it on, from a benign point of view, it will give her the flexibility to uh, cut a deal and cut a softer deal uh, if that's what she wants to do. Uh, but it's very difficult to interpret what she does want to do. I just know from talking to Irish officials who are dealing with British officials who would not be the British political thing, they feel that the British officials know that it's in Britain's best interests to have a soft exit, to have access to the free market if they possibly can. If if Theresa May does actually want to go down that route, well then a strong majority will free her from the tyranny of 50 or 60 or 70 cro- uh, crazy Tories really who who just want to exit exit as whatever way, they, as hard as possible way. So I think it will give her the flexibility. But then there is the other question. Publicly she has... She's, since the referendum, taken quite a strong uh, Brexit means Brexit and all of that line. Uh, and so she wants to go for a hard uh, Brexit. This will give her the, the, the chance to do that. But I suspect that uh, I suspect that reality uh, is biting, that they know already. And I think they have detected a change in the tone from the British government that they know that a hard exit, uh, uh, and particularly if there's no deal at all, if they're just bounced out of the EU, that it's going to be hugely damaging to the UK. So I think on, on, on balance, I think it's going to give her the opportunity to have a softer exit and that will be good for the UK. It'll be good for us as well, obviously, because the softer the exit, the better it's going to be for us. Some of the things she's been saying under pressure, like this is going to be a red, white and blue exit. Yeah. And and also that um, any trade agreements will be subject to no court, but the British courts, really? you couldn't do a deal with North Korea on that basis. I mean, you have to have some independent court. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, they are going to have to get real. The question is, do they want to get real? I think when they do see the reality, they keep talking about, but still about having access to the free market. Well, they're not spelling it out, but if they want access to the free market, they're going to have to pay for it. Uh, and they're going to have to accept in the longer run if they want if they want a deal they're going to have to accept some version of the Norwegian option that they will be uh, have free trade but they will be subject to EU rules and they'll have to pay for it and they won't have any influence whatsoever now if that's what they want to do of course the British will they'll dress it up as a victory yeah. uh, and they'll dress it up as uh, this is a red white and blue this is what we wanted all along Um so I think that the only way she's going to be able to sell it at the end is presented as a victory. And if the European negotiators, again, you you probably know them, I don't, uh, but they have a high reputation, Barnier and the people around him, uh, they know what they're about. They are three tough professional uh, yeah, negotiators. Exactly. And and in Parliament, they have a very good spokesman mm. in the Liberal uh, Guy for Hofstadt. Hofstadt yes. Barnier is a very good negotiator. Yeah. And Seuss in the council, really uh, low profile. Mm. He knows exactly uh, what he's at. But, um, y- you know, it's, 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 very, it's very difficult to see. A lot of things can happen by accident. But I, I often think of what Seamus Mallon said about the Good Friday Agreement mm. that was Sunningdale for slow learners. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. they, they, they may call this do exactly the same things but dress it up with different terms I think that that, that is the most benign uh, uh, possible outcome and I think that is it is still feasible because because of the rhetoric that Theresa May was using like yourself you were citing a few, a few minutes ago about the court I, again I was talking to one or or two of the Irish officials who are dealing with the British and I was saying you've got to be ready this is going to be the worst possible exit and they're saying no no this t- they, they, give it time that the British officialdom knows the score, uh, it take it will take time to permeate through the political system. Now they're not saying it is going to be the soft exit in the end, but they said don't rule out the soft exit. So I think if she has her majority, 
uh, a much stronger majority, I think it is possible then that we're going to see a more benign outcome. And I think the Europeans, because they're smart, much smarter negotiators than the British have. I mean, look at Boris Johnson, uh, Liam Fox, appalling. David Davies has, appears to have some semblance of sense. I know sense, him very right. well, and he, he is, but he's very much uh, a, a, a conservative. But you, you're mm. right. About, I mean, I wonder will that team survive the general election? Well, again, if, that could be a, one of the very early signs if, if May has a really strong hand, mm. will she change her team? Uh, if she does, it would be certainly a positive development because Johnson is just a joke. Uh, I mean, he's a buffoon um, and he's perceived... Uh, it seemed to be a buffoon. He's being—he's a creation of the of the British media more than anything else because he plays along to their to, to their stereotypes. Let, let's just look ahead. With taking your experience and tr- trying to look into the future, where do you see the European Union in say a generation, and where do you see Ireland as part of the European Union in in the generation? I mean, will Northern Ireland have the option of coming in with the Republic within the Union or staying out with? Britain in in an economic area of some sort. Well, I think the the future of the European Union. I think actually next weekend is going to tell us a tale of who the French presidential election, uh, and if Macron does come through as uh, the French president, I think it, it would be a huge boost for the European Union because he's actually campaigning as a pro-Europe candidate, as a as a believer in the European Union, and I think that I'd, that is is really heartening. And he seems to be in with a great chance as long as he's in the, in the top two and makes it to the runoff. I think he's going to win. I think that would be a boost for the European Union. The Dutch election saw there the Gert Wilders kind of isolated. And then the German election, I think uh, Angela Merkel, is, it, it should be the safe option. I'd like to see Angela Merkel continuing on. But even if the Social Democrats uh, did w- manage to come uh, to get it yet into power in the German election, uh, they're, they're, they're a pro-Europe party. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, Europe could actually be strengthened as the year goes on. After Brexit and Trump last year, when everybody was writing off Europe, I think the populist tide may be held back and uh, and sense will, will prevail. I think this is one of the reasons, though, I think that the British can't be seen to exit the EU and end up better off by being outside. So I, that's right. the EU has to stick together and Britain has got to pay a price. If they're not in the club, they can't have the benefits of being in the EU. Now, it, it's everybody's interest that they, it doesn't uh, escalate into a, into a, an economic war with them, but they... I, but I think I think the long run, if you look at the history of Europe for 60 years ago when this was set up, who would have thought in the aftermath of the Second World War, all the millions dead, that uh, this kind of peace project could uh, could begin and could develop and could become what it has been over the years. I think it's a, it's a magnificent achievement. I think looking at the span of, of human history, almost the European Union is one of the great shining lights uh of what what humanity can do, so I think it it will it will hold together and it will progress. And I mean, when you think how much <coughs> of that has happened since the Berlin Wall came down, yeah, yeah. I saw the Berlin Wall for the first time on my honeymoon, mm-hmm. and I, I can't I can't tell you anything in my life that had such an effect. The idea mm-hmm. that from there, from East Berlin to Vladivostok, yeah, yeah. people were walled in, mm-hmm. it's yeah. extraordinary. But now we don't re- remember that, and yet these people are in and they're part of the work in progress mm. and we need them in for stability. We do need them in absolutely for stability um, if uh, g- given the way P- Putin is behaving and they, they need the European Union and they be, obviously the people from Lithuania and Estonia, Latvia, I mean the, the notion of being brought back under Soviet dom- or Russian domination you know, is, is their nightmare scenario. So I think Europe is a great project. And just looking at it on the island of Ireland, um, I think there will be an agreement that if the Northern Ireland ever wants to re- jo- join the EU, yes, they, they can. They, they will be able to do so. 
I'm I'm a bit sceptical about all the, the campaigns for United Ireland Sinn Féin promoted them Fianna Fáil followed even Fianna Gael have kind of thrown in, in some support in that direction I think the more you talk about it the less likely it's going to happen I think United Ireland will happen when the unionist population say look we'd be better off joining the Republic and we want to join and we want to join the EU and that could well happen in 10, 15, 20 years because I think I think the EU is going to move on and develop and I think the UK is going to decline uh, after leaving the EU and I think it might become uh, I think the, the day we want is that they're knocking on the door asking, pleading to be let in I think in that, in that, in that situation then we can talk about United Ireland but I think the, the signals I think that are coming from Europe is that they're very conscious of the peace process and especially they, 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 they will be making special arrangements that if no other Ireland ever does want to join it can let me just turn to an issue nearer to home. Um, within the European Parliament, an MEP's privilege can be set aside mm. if you abuse that privilege. Sometimes, indeed, MEPs agree to it happening. There's a process for doing it. Given the sort of instant media coverage we talked about earlier, um, there have been at least two high-profile cases recently um, involving the courts, and indeed on the Abilara case, a different sort of case involving mm. the courts. And the absolute privilege of uh, TDs and senators in relation to utterances in the Oireachtas has been uh, upheld. But should the House itself, the Houses of the Oireachtas themselves, put something in place to protect the good name of innocent citizens from abuse? Clearly the courts can't do it because the Constitution protects TDs and senators Mm. for very good reason. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think I think certainly some TDs have over overstepped the mark in terms of abusing privilege. And okay, that's inevitable, and it's maybe it's, it's human nature. But I think the doll itself needs to have sanctions in place for TDs to do that. I think we saw the, the Angela Kearns case, and the courts made the right decision, in my view, upholding the right the freedom of speech of of parliamentarians. But I think the courts did it. One of the reasons they gave Angela Kearns most of her costs was because they, the court, the High Court, did said that um, her reputation was damaged. Uh, and there were certain members of the Committee of Public Accounts, Mary Lou MacDonald, Shane Ross, John McGuinness, who seemed to use it w- wanting a headline a day. And they, I, in my opinion, they abused their position. They abused their their freedom of speech. I just, there was a similar position when uh, Des O'Malley was attacked in the doll uh, by Mary Lou MacDonald at one stage. Uh, he'd, he'd long left it. Uh, uh, there, were, there were allegations which are completely false, uh, which she put into the public domain, uh, which had been made. Uh, about him, so I think TDs do, do need to be careful, and more, and they just don't just need to be careful. They need to set up have a system whereby there are severe there are s- severe penalties. In other words, they financial losses or temporary ex- or loss of uh, expulsion from Parliament or temporary loss of 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 their immunity or their not so much their immunity of their their own freedom of speech. Mm. Uh, that maybe privilege can be withdrawn from individuals if they continually abuse the privilege. And but the only ones that can do that are the Oireachtas. The Oireachtas are the only ones, and they've so far they're they're very reluctant to do it because the people who abuse the privilege will will, will create a stink, mm. and they will claim that it's it's an attempt to. Uh, put restrictions on their freedom of speech but I think um, they they haven't covered themselves in glory in, in, in some of the cases in, in, more re- in more recent years. When I was there I mean if you named somebody outside the house in this sort of a way you'd be dealt with very severely mm. you'd be out of the house and you'd be you, you, and not only that the, the media then would hang you out to dry for, for being yeah. suspended for doing something that you shouldn't do so I I, I, I mean if somebody said something about Gay Mitchell mm. or Stephen Collins mm. or some innocent person mm. in the street there should be some redress and I, I, I feel the, the European Parliament deals with it mm. other parliaments deal with it without affecting the right of M- MEPs mm-hmm. or TDs uh, to speak so I, I, I think it is an important issue uh, um, 
but let, let me just turn to one other issue if I might uh, and it's the, it, it's it's an issue that we rarely hear uttered in politics now the issues the, t- the words social justice um, there seems to be a sort of a, a protest mentality somebody else should pay not far from where we are now many years ago a woman from St. Teresa's Garden said to me one day can I have a word gay and I said yeah she said why does my husband go to work and I said what do you mean and the guy next door was a carpenter who had up, had work, didn't go to work, drew the dole, got paid on his, his got charged his rent on his social mm. welfare income. Her husband was a labourer, went to work. Anyway, the point she was making to me was that they were paying for this and that this was not socially just. So does social justice start with enterprise? I, I have this idea that, if, and I don't mean, I'm not talking about the wealthy enterprising names that would come to mind. But to reward someone for effort, isn't that necessary to create the wealth, to pay for the public services, then to have accountable public services? With every right, shouldn't there be a responsibility? Why does this sort of discussion not take place or discussions around that sort of Well, I think politicians themselves have kind of indulged all this. They've indulged all the groups who want something for nothing. Um, I remember Michael Lunan, the Minister for Finance, only saying a couple of years ago that nobody in the Dáil comes, everybody in the Dáil, the TDs, make representations to him wanting money from the Exchequer for something. A lot of worthy causes. Nobody ever comes in and says, you shouldn't be spending money on this or asking, is the taxpayer getting value for money? Um, so I think we have we have a culture, we have a political culture which encourages encourages the whinging mentality and 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 the and the begging bowl mentality and and needless to say I never did this no no <laughs> see this is the point people everybody wants it wants we want it both ways but I think that there, there is a the whole water charges thing I think is a classic example of this I think it, I think all the parties have been, behaved appallingly on this but um uh you know so you, the people who do pay uh are actually taken for granted. And the majority of people were prepared to pay the water charges. Over 60% were prepared to pay, but it's the 20% who won't pay for anything who actually dictate uh, the agenda. So it's supposed to come out of general taxation to pay for them. I think that there isn't, uh, there isn't uh, a wide enough debate. And I think most, the majority of the population actually do want to work. And I think that one of the big achievements of of, of, of the political system over the last 15, 20 years has been the creation of employment back in the 1980s when I started covering politics I think there were less than a million people in the workforce there are now two million people in the workforce um, so some things have been, are, are, are being done are being done right uh, and I think most people don't want to be spongers but I think the system uh, looks after the spongers more than it looks after the people who are who, who do want to go out and, and go to work and, and the people I really feel my, my, my empathy with are the people who are on ordinary salaries 40,000 a year 40 Bring it, have, you know, we're trying to bring up a family commuting to work um, and not having job security outside the public service uh, I was kind of smiling to myself in the last couple of days there somebody at one of the teachers conferences a teacher said it himself and his wife who's a nurse and they, they couldn't they couldn't live on the salaries they were getting now between them they probably have around 80,000 a year a lot of people who are living on far less uh, and who don't have the job security that they have so I, I think we indulge the people who complain a lot and I think the media do that as well. And it's not just the political system. If you look at the any of the media, uh, broadcast and print, it's full of it's full of stories about people with, with with complaints who are complaining about the system. And it doesn't reflect the I think the concerns of the majority of people who just want to get who want to get on and work and are prepared to pay their taxes. You me- you mentioned uh, the growth in the numbers of people at work. The economy is growing again. What lessons should we learn from the Celtic Tiger years? Well, the Celtic Tiger years, um, 
should have taught us some lessons, but it's not just, I think one of the lessons where the society hasn't learned is it's easy to blame the banks have become the whipping boy. Now, the banks did behave disgracefully, don't get me wrong. Uh, and what happened was the, the two big banks didn't have an... It was Anglo-Irish Bank uh, set a tone. So you had a small bank which grew rapidly, changed the way banking was done, and the, the two big institutions who, sh- who should have been trusted to, to stand for uh, sober banking followed the herd. But it wasn't just the bankers. I mean, public, public pay... Uh, Tax cuts for everybody. Everybody in the system um, uh, was paying far less tax than before, and it was like party time, and, uh, and and everybody everybody enjoyed it. So I think society itself needs to needs to look back, and we need to have, have a much more much more sober assessment. For instance, I think one of the big mistakes the current government is making is trying to abolish USC. I think USC is is a tax that raises a lot of money for the state. It was brought in as an emergency because the tax re- revenues collapsed. I think getting rid of it is, is crazy. Maybe reduce the rates. Um, but I think um, we just we just need to be aware, of, uh, the banks and everybody else need to be aware of the, the of, of restraint, and we see property prices going up again. Uh, and I know Simon Coveney is trying is is, is trying to do a, a, a job of getting the housing supply back, and it's going to take going to take time. Uh, but I think it's a mentality. Now I think having learned the lesson, I think I think enough people um, would be the, the notion of the boom again, with, which was a Charlie McCreevy said, if you have it, spend it. I think that kind of mentality uh, is is really dangerous, and I I don't detect that he's coming back. I think p- people. I think virtually everybody in the political system um, has, 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 is aware of how badly things could go wrong if we go back down that road. I was surprised at the outset of the interview you told me you had once been a teacher. I didn't know yeah. that. Uh, in fact, it often occurred to me that Stephen Collins, uh, when you come to finish in journalism, might well become a teacher or a lecturer in in, in ethics and journalism, yeah. for example. Is obviously a... a, a, a an opening in the market for mm. for that. So, what about the future for Stephen Collins? What are you going to do? Did you ever think of running for election, for example? No, I did. Um, I think I, I'd be terrified to run for election. It's. Uh, <laughs> it's. Uh, I remember somebody once said, "What wasn't offering you to?" But you were saying, "Well, would you actually, if you're if you're asked?" And I said, "I wouldn't have the guts to do it. I do. That's why I like politicians, actually. Despite despite what they have, they have, they have great. So courage. you're they, the one. They put themselves <laughs> up front, and they and they do they do go. So at, at this stage of my career, no, I'm not going to be. That's because past the day of running for election. I'm continuing to work in the, in the area. I'm, so I, I'm going to continue writing a column for the next few years, and you know. And uh, contributing to the paper, so not a, not I won't be as busy as I was. I won't have to go rushing around covering news stories. So that that, that is good, and the Times is, is 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 a good place to continue to working with. Sure, teaching in journalism. If anybody asked me, nobody ever asked me. I did used to do an, an annual. Uh, lecture in UCD on politics and journalism for the politics students uh, again when Mar- Morris Manning my friend was there um, and occasionally I do occasional talks around the place but um, um, yeah sure I, I well I certainly consider anything that was uh, I, I was asked to do Well we look forward to that Stephen it's been a great pleasure talking to you thank you very much indeed You're welcome Gay Gay Mitchell Meets a series of unique interviews with prominent people in public life These interviews go beyond the normal soundbite and provide real analysis of issues in public affairs. Game Mitchell Meets is a unique media production.